I, uh, I know many of you are on Facebook. I'm not a Facebook person myself. I like Twitter or better yet, no social media, but um, if I had to pick, it would be Twitter. Um, but I go on Twitter. You know, you can't hardly uh, go on Facebook. You can't hardly miss it these days. Um, and one of the things about, you know, kind of the nature of being a pastor is a lot of my Facebook friends are pastors. They're either currently serving in the area, people I stay in touch with here in the community, or they are uh, people I knew in seminary. So I see a lot of um, social media postings from p- pastors. And one of the one of the um, things I see a lot of, I mean a, a fair p- bit of, is postings from a website called the Babylon Bee. The Babylon Bee is a is a uh, satirical website. It's kind of like The Onion. How many of you have seen The Onion? So, all right, a couple of hands. So The Onion is a, a satirical website, but The Babylon Bee is kind of the same thing, but really kind of more oriented toward Christian subculture. So it's aiming uh, pr- kind of broadly Christian, but particularly um, evangelical Christian subculture. And so let me give you some examples of the sorts of things that, that, I po- that you see there. So this one right here, Billy Graham converts thousands to Christ while waiting in line to get into heaven. So... <laughs> So you might imagine there's a long line at the pearly gates, and G, uh, P, B, Billy Graham gets up there, and he has a he has a little crusade right there um, on the cloud in front of the pearly gates, and is able to win some people to Christ right there in at the at the gate of heaven. So that's one. Another one right here: um, preacher wanders away from pulpit to catch Pokemon. So, so if you're not clear why a preacher would do that, um, uh, I would ask uh, Trenton or some of the other young people in the church because maybe they would understand that better than I do, but um, uh, sometimes preachers are the butt of jokes, so uh, the next one, um, uh, megachurch stage collapses under pastor's ma- massive ego, so, so, and it's not just megachurches, so, um, and then uh, one more, um, megachurch introduces frequent tither rewards card, so, so, so um, this is the kind of thing, you know, they're not, they're not, it's not great humor for the ages, but it's amusing. And um, I think one more. So local church sends, sings 10,000 reasons for the 10,000th time. So we, we sing that here from time to time. Um, so uh, 10,000, you know, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, um, uh, uh, worship his holy name. So um, you can imagine a church that celebrates that by singing it 10,000 times. So, so that's the kind of humor you get there. But because it is a broad satirical website, they don't limit themselves exclusively to Christian subculture. Sometimes they talk about uh, the broader culture. They talk about celebrities, lifestyle, politics, things like that. And so uh, I'll give you an example of the politics that they do. So here's one. Republicans announce plan to pretend to be fiscally conservative again the moment a Democrat takes office. So, so some of you laugh and some of you wince. Um, but that's okay. There's a, here's, here's another one. It says CNN purchases industrial-sized washing machine to spin news before publication. And this is the kind of thing I see in my Facebook feed uh, because people will post these sorts of things. Well, 22,000 people posted, uh, 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 shared that last one on um, Facebook this week. 22,000 people thought that was funny, and they shared it with their friends. And a lot of people who didn't have senses of humor uh, said, that's fake news. And so they went to Snopes, and they said, Snopes, you have to fact check that because that's not true. CNN doesn't have a washing machine where they spin the news. So, you know, irony sometimes goes right over people's heads. So sure enough, Snopes uh, did a fact-checking story on it. Did CNN purchase an industrial-sized washing machine to spin the news? And their conclusion was no. 
That is false. That is not true. So, so they did that. Now, Snopes is not stupid. They've, they've seen the Babylon Bee before. So here's another one they did. Um, is playing Christmas music before Thanksgiving now a federal crime? So, so there was a Babylon Bee article that said it was. People missed the, the humor there. And so Snopes said, no, it's not a federal crime. And then one more, um, a federal judge orders Chris Tomlin to stop um, adding cr- choruses to perfectly good hymns. So if you know Chris Tomlin, he's a Christian musician, and he's got a lot of great songs. I really like Chris Tomlin, but many of his songs do start out as a familiar hymn, and then he tweaks them. So you can imagine a federal judge doing that. And a lot of people went to Snopes and said, is that true? And Snopes said, no, it is not true. Now, I tell you all this because after Snopes did the fact-checking on the CNN washing machine story, Facebook missed the joke. So Facebook has algorithms that say there's a lot of fake news that are being passed around today and we need to put a stop to it. So what happened after Snopes fact-checked that story is uh, Facebook uh, sent this message to the guy who runs Babylon B. Um, so they sent him this message, which is the next one. There it goes. Um, so it says, uh, um, a page you administer recently posted the link, CNN purchases this, um, uh, repeat offenders will see their distribution reduced and their ability to monetize and advertise removed. Learn more here. So they sent a note saying to, to the author of that, the, the guy who administers the Babylon Bee uh, Facebook page, um, saying, you can't do that, we won't let you, um, we'll reduce how often you show up in people's feeds, and we will um, actually uh, quit letting people advertise um, on the same page. So it was a warning. And then for people who just were sharing that news, uh, they got a different message, which is the next one. It said, uh, before you share this content, you might want to know there's additional reporting on this from Snopes.com. So so they're warning people, don't be part of the problem. Don't spread fake news. The problem is, this isn't really fake news. This is satire. And a lot of people just don't have a sense of humor, and they didn't get it. And so it kind of blew up and became this little cause. And some people are saying it's because Facebook is a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, lefty tyrants who want to destroy the world. And it's really not, I don't think, that problem. I think the problem is we live in a golden age of fake news. And people are trying to figure out what to do about all the fake news out there. So um, the problem is uh, that, that um, there is a ton of it out there. And um, there are plenty of examples. You saw this week Hope Hicks um, uh, resigned or announced her resignation from the White House. And you see there, um, this is from the New York Times, Hope Hicks announces that she acknowledges she sometimes tells white lies for Trump. She was in the White House communications office, and she said that, yes, she sometimes tells white lies. Well, when a Republican sees that, they kind of go, yeah, but what about Clinton? Okay, and so, you know, Bill Clinton famously said things that were um, not true. Um, and then um, uh, Democrats say, yeah, but what about Nixon? Right? And then it becomes this kind of back and forth. Uh, we wouldn't do it if you didn't do it. You know, we, you started it. Um, uh, we, can, we get a pass because your guy has been so bad in the past. So, so this is what people do to justify the, the, the spinning and the fake news. So this is something that, that you all know, you've all seen and uh, because of that, because because of that, people have started to pick their their side, right? People say, you know, I just don't trust any news at all that comes from CNN. I don't trust any news that comes from Fox. I'm just going to 
curl up in my comfortable little bubble and I'm not going to be dissuaded by your so-called facts. And because that is a common perspective of so many people, um, Scott Adams wrote this book. Um, uh, I don't know if you've seen it. It's kind of the airport book uh, you see a lot of these days. Scott Adams, he is the uh, uh, cartoonist who came up with the Dilbert comic strip. And you see down here at the bottom, it's uh, Dilbert's dog, and he's got a, a characteristic yellow comb uh, haircut, so uh, you can... <laughs> You can decide who's he, who's, who's he's uh, mocking there. And the title of the book, the title of the book is Win Bigly, but the subtitle is Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter. Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter. He says the problem is that nobody wants to hear your facts. doesn't matter what your facts are. If they don't like them, then they will say your facts are just fake news. They come from a website I don't trust. They come from a news organization I don't trust. I don't have to listen to your facts. So he says, what do you do? How do we, how do we communicate? How do we talk to other people in a world where facts don't matter? So that's the idea behind the book. And the question for us today is, is that true? Do we live in a world where facts don't matter? And if it is true, if we live in a world where facts don't matter, how should we live in a world where facts don't matter? Well, we're going to look at um, the scriptures today, um, and uh, we're going to see a story of two different interrogations. The story that John tells in so few verses, he tells a story of two different interrogations. Jesus is interrogated by the high priest, and Jesus tells the truth, and it costs him his life. And meanwhile, Peter is interrogated in the high priest's courtyard and he tells a lie or a series of lies and he escapes with his life. He lives, but he lives to regret lying. So what I'd like to do is take a look at these scriptures and then see what we can do to apply them to our own lives. So if you can find... um, uh, chapter 18 of John's Gospel. It's um, it's in the Pew Bibles, of course, if you want to look for it in your phone or if you bring your own Bible. Uh, John 18, starting in verse 12. While you're finding it, um, what's happened right now? Last week we were in the upper room. Jesus had just served the um, the Last Supper to his disciples, and then he washed their feet. And then he talked for, for five chapters. And then they went across, they, they left Jerusalem, they went across the Kidron Valley, um, and they spent the night... In, um, in an olive orchard in um, the uh, uh, what is called the, the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's where Jesus and his disciples spent the night. The problem is one of the disciples is missing. Judas left the supper early, and he went and got a mob of soldiers because he knew where Jesus would be that night. So he brings a mob. He brings the, the Roman uh, soldiers that were on loan to the temple authorities and the temple's own guards, and he brings them to the place where he knew that they would be, and they arrest Jesus. And Peter pulls out a sword, and that's a, that's a whole that that tells us so much about Peter's uh, personality right there. Because for us, you know, we have a Second Amendment. Uh, people in our in our country have a right to bear arms. That was not true in in first century Palestine. Um, you did not have a right to carry a sword unless the Romans said you could. So where Peter got one, what he's doing with the sword, there's all kinds of questions I've got about that. But Peter says, 
Uh, all right, now the revolution has come. Okay, now it's time to, to kind of throw off our chains and strike back against the oppressors. He pulls out a sword and he takes a slice at one of the, one of the people who came to arrest Jesus and he kind of misses the guy's head and uh, cuts off his ear. But that's as far as it gets because um, the scripture tells us that um, uh, it says, Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malthus, the high priest's slave. We're going to come back to this. But Peter said, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? Jesus says, no, we're not going to have a revolution right now. So he has Jesus put, he has Peter put the sword away. And then he goes, and we pick up the story in uh, verse 12. So it says, the soldiers, their commanding officer, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up, and they took him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas at that time. So they take Jesus to his interrogation in the home of Annas, the high priest, or the the former high priest. He's currently kind of the, the power behind the throne. And so that's what happens with Jesus, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But meanwhile, Simon Peter follows. So we don't know what he did with the sword. He stashed the sword someplace in the Olive Garden or something, and then he follows, and he sees where they've taken Jesus, and he goes right up to the door of the courtyard, but he can't get in. This is a walled enclosure, uh, a lot of houses in the Middle East built on this structure. There's a courtyard, a wall around the whole thing, and then a building inside where the people uh, uh, actually live. And he wants to get into the courtyard so he can overhear what's going on inside the house. But he can't get in because he has no no authority to get past the doorkeeper. However, John tells us that there is another disciple. And we don't know who this disciple is. Some people speculate that it might be John. But another disciple has some pull. Another disciple is acquainted with the high priest. So he's allowed to enter the high priest. And then when he sees Peter get stuck at the door, he goes back and says, let that guy in. He's with me. Okay, so the doorkeeper comes and um, opens the door. Now it says it says the woman who is watching the gate. Um, the word here is is um, the word for a girl, uh, but it, she may she may not have been a girl. Um, so she let the, she let Peter in. She may not have been a girl. This is also the common pe- word people would use to address a slave. So it'd say boy or girl to address a household servant. So we don't know how old she was. She was probably not very old, but she may not have been like you know a, a middle schooler or something. So. Um, so the person who opens the door um, says to Peter, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And maybe Peter is just afraid of her. Maybe Peter is afraid to say anything. But he's got some backing. He's got this guy who is known to the high priest. That's the only reason he's being led through the door in, at all. So I don't think Peter actually is afraid at this point. I think what Peter does is he thinks, I'm a sword-carrying man of action type. I can penetrate the enemy's compound just by lying about Jesus. It's that easy. The security measures here stink. All I've got to do is just say, no, me, little innocent me, I can get right through the door. I think Peter congratulates himself as he goes into the courtyard. But then he's stuck because he's in the courtyard. Now, he could he could go off into the darkness someplace, far from the fire, but it's a cold night. And that would actually draw attention to him because people are going to look at him and say, why is that guy standing by himself? Why doesn't he come over here and warm himself in the light of the fire? And so Peter is kind of stuck now. He got in easily enough, but now he's got a problem. So what does he do? Somebody says, hey, you're not, you know, 
uh, one of the other one of the other biographies of Jesus tells us that that uh, that somebody recognizes that that uh, Peter's accent is not a, a Jerusalem accent that he's talking like somebody from out of town and they say hey you're not one of his friends are you and Peter says no I am not and then one of the household slaves of the high priest a relative of the man who Peter's uh, whose ear Peter had cut says didn't I see you out there in the olive grove? Didn't I see you? I think I recognize you. You cut off the ear of my relative. This is the Middle East. This is the first century. I can, I can have a vendetta against you and every member of your family for the rest of your days, okay, because we take family very seriously here. Don't I recognize you? And at this point, I don't think he's worried about Jesus at all. He's just saying, I had nothing to do with it. I, I, I disclaim all knowledge of anything. Because Peter's afraid for his life at this point. So he says no. And at that very moment, the rooster crows. So that's the first interrogation. But meanwhile, there's a second interrogation going on. So if you could go to the next slide. So meanwhile, the second interrogation is taking place in next. So, so. People are asking Jesus, tell us about your insurrection. Tell us about this revolution you're leading. Tell us about who your followers are and how they're armed. And Jesus says, everybody knows what I teach. I've preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple and the people get where the people gather. I have not spoken in secret. Ask any of them. They can all tell you what I've said. Jesus says, the best thing about telling the truth is it's so easy to keep your story straight. Ask anybody. They can all tell you the exact same story. They don't need to be coached. They know what I said. And then, proving that a thug who's willing to work for any politician is not a new invention, one of the temple authorities slaps Jesus, says, you show some respect, you. And so Jesus says, he says, uh, is that any way to answer the high priest? And Jesus says, if I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Well, you know, I w- I'm a pastor in a Christian church, and I want to be respectful, but that's really kind of a dumb question. I mean, we know, we know why they're beating him. They're beating him because he's telling the truth. If he would just lie, they wouldn't have to beat him, right? But somebody who tells the truth in a world where facts don't matter, he's a threat. You can't trust somebody who will just suddenly go off and tell the truth at a moment's notice in a world where facts don't matter. The reason they're beating Jesus is because he tells the truth. And he keeps on telling the truth. And the beating becomes a flogging. And the flogging becomes a crucifixion. And Jesus dies because he doesn't lie. But that's not the end of the story. We know how this turns out because Jesus is raised from the dead. And when he rises, a little bit of the resurrection is introduced into our world. And Jesus tells his disciples, see, you don't have to lie. The world cannot make you lie. All the world can do is kill you. And that doesn't do any good, does it? It's a temporary thing. Jesus tells his disciples, you don't have to lie. And you know who learned the lesson? Peter learned the lesson. Peter 
we read later on in Acts 3, Peter goes to the temple to tell his, um, to tell people, tell people about Jesus. Jesus has, has been raised, um, and has, has ascended to heaven. And Peter goes to the temple, um, with John and they heal a man there. And he's arrested because he starts talking about Jesus and the authorities say, um, We'll let you go because it was a great miracle. We'll let you go, but quit talking about Jesus. And he says, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling everything we have seen and heard. Peter learns the lesson that Jesus teaches here. The world cannot make you lie. So what should we do about this? Well, we should tell the truth. Or maybe we should start small. And just not lie. A couple of years ago, I ran into uh, something called Wesley's Holy Club. John Wesley was one of the uh, founders of, of Methodism. And he and his friends in the uh, about 1720, they put together something called the Holy Club. And they asked themselves a series of questions every day. They asked themselves 22 questions, uh, a searching and, and fearless moral inventory, we might say. The first one goes like this. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am. In other words, am I a hypocrite? That's the first question. The second question is, am I honest in all my acts and words, or do I exaggerate? The fourth question, can I be trusted? The fourteenth question, do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? There's 22 questions like this, and I read them, and I thought, I cannot answer yes to any of these. Right? Or, or, or I can't answer no. I can't. I'm not good. Okay? I read this and it made me realize what a colossal liar I am. So I went to the Methodist um, lunch we have periodically here and I asked the Methodist pastor, I said, do you guys still ask yourselves those questions? And everybody around the table started laughing. They said, no, you can't ask yourself those questions. They're brutal. They are brutal. Because we all lie. We are chronic liars. Jonathan Haidt, I've, I've talked about his book before, uh, his book, um, The Righteous Mind, uh, before here. He talks about when he was, um, uh, he talks about the day when he realized he was a chronic liar. Um, the next slide, I think. Uh, okay, move, move one more. So he says, on February 3rd, 2007, shortly before lunch, I discovered that I was a chronic liar. And he goes on to explain what, what he means. What he means is this. His wife came in and said, I wish you wouldn't put the, the dishes on the, on the counter. We've talked about this, right? And he said he quickly arranged a bunch of facts in his head so that it exonerated him. He said they were all true things, but the ordering was a little different and the timing was different. And so what happened is he said, we are all our own press secretary. We all go out there and we all tell white lies, not, not for the president, but for us. And he said, he said, the nature of what we do is we rearrange the facts so that we come out looking a little better. Not, we're, we're not making a, a big monstrous whopper, but we just kind of shade the timing. We just fuzz it up a little bit so we come out better. So he discovered he was a chronic liar, and he talks about that some in the, the book, The Righteous Mind. I recommend it. So, so what do we do if we're chronic liars? Well, this is a real problem because if we are chronic liars, what do we expect from our politicians? You know, uh, some time ago, somebody wrote this. Uh, can you give me the next slide? He said, he said about this, he said, since, since 
us, since the people, the great mass of people, themselves lie in little things, right? We're not terrible liars, right? But we're chronic liars. We have a we have a little bit of a lying problem. And he says, since they themselves lie in everything, but would be ashamed of lies that were too big, they will not be able to believe when a politician tells them a big lie. And the person who said that was Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf. He said, part of the problem that we have is because we know the difference between a big lie and a small lie. We say, look, I'm not a big liar. I I shade the truth a little bit. I tell my wife that there was a reason why I had to take the dog out and I had to put the dishes down on the counter. and, And I had kind of some excuses that I didn't really have, but it was a small lie. And no less an authority on politicians lying than Hitler said that's why politicians get away with their big lies because we assume small lies. So if they jump over the small lies and go straight for the big lies, they can pull them off because we don't believe people will do that. But even if that's not true, even if we can't improve the civil discourse in our society by telling the truth, it's better for us The psychologist Jordan Peterson, he says this, one more slide. He says, if you say yes when no needs to be said, you transform yourself into someone who can only say yes, even when it is very clearly time to say no. So whether or not we can change society or not, that's that's just something we just have to figure out. It may or may not happen. But he says, society depends on us saying, saying yes, and we transform ourselves into someone who can no longer say no. You know, there's a there's a problem today. We talk about political correctness. We talk about a PC culture and how there's things that are true, but we're just not going to go down that because we don't want to be mobbed on Facebook. We don't want a bunch of people starting a Twitter storm against us. There's just things we're not going to say. It's just not worth the hassle. I'm going to be politically correct. And in the universities, they call that... PC or political correctness. It's percolated out, but it's a particular problem in universities. And Jonathan Haidt, the same author I mentioned before, he talks about what a problem that is. Uh, because psychologists have, have, have um, discovered something since the 1930s. One more slide. We know about political correctness. Okay, what is political correctness? Political correctness is not saying the thing everybody has heard before because it would be mean. Uh, the psychologist Katz and, um, Katz and Alford, they called it um, pluralistic ignorance, which means exactly that. The emperor has no clothes, and no one is willing to say so. Society depends on people who are willing to say, you know, I don't see it. Everybody else is looking at it, and they're acting like they do see it. But you know what? Honestly, I don't see it. And so uh, Haidt has founded an organization called Heterodox Academy. He says the big problem in the universities is that there is no viewpoint diversity. There's all kinds of diversity in the universities today, everything except viewpoint diversity, that the universities have this uh, cloying culture of political correctness. And as a result, they're not doing their job. They're not finding truth, which is their job. So he founded something called Heterodox Academy uh, with the specific intention of... One more slide, I think. I was supposed to drive the slides today, but my phone's not working. So um, can you do the next one? So, all right, it's not there. Okay, so Heterodox Academy 
Heterodox Academy has 1,700 PhDs and graduate students in it, and I wish them well because I think he's right. I think we do need to be people who tell the truth or people who don't lie. Now, one last thought, and I'll close. You know, we, we, talk about, we talk about white lies. Why do we tell white lies? We tell white lies because we don't want to be mean. You know, famously, the, the famous trap question um, is, does this dress make me look fat? And the famous answer is, do these glasses make me look stupid? Um, so we don't want to be mean. We don't, there are questions we don't know how to answer. And maybe the correct answer is to answer them the way Jesus did. How would Jesus answer that question? Somebody says, you know, uh, uh, Johanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's, secret, uh, Herod's uh, um, uh, steward, she, she's walking along the road with him one day, and she says, Jesus, what do, we, what do you think about this toga? Does it make me look fat? And Jesus is thinking to himself, it's not the dress, it's not the toga. What would Jesus say? What would Jesus say? Well, the scriptures don't tell us that, but they tell us something that I think we can learn from. Um, uh, there's, there's a story about um, how Jesus invites the, the tax collector Matthew to join his little group of disciples. He says, he says you guys, join up with me, Matthew. And so Matthew has a party, but the only people who will go to Matthew's party are tax collectors and sinners. And so the Pharisees and the disciples are out on the lawn. They won't go into this house because there's tax collectors and Pharisees inside. And they say, what is your rabbi doing associating with low life like that? And Jesus calls out the window, answering the question. He says, next slide. He says, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Andy Stanley says, he imagines, he imagines Matthew standing there saying, I'm, you're my guest, I'm hosting you, and you're calling me a sinner. And he says, he says, Jesus laughs and says, Matthew, you're a tax collector. You're a terrible sinner. Now here, let me give you a hug. I'm going to die for you. See, I think that's the way Jesus would answer the question. Does this dress make me look fat? You're fat. I love you. Let me give you a hug. I'm going to die for you. And maybe that's the problem with white lies. is because they're not loving. Ultimately, they let us replace love with a fiction. So what would the world be like if we quit lying and started loving? What would it be like if we were a church where when somebody is broken up because of their dog, where that's not too much information, where we can love people no matter what their circumstances, what would the world be like if we were people who didn't lie? Jesus died and he said, to his disciples, the world cannot make you lie. All the world can do is kill you, and that's a temporary thing. He knew it would be hard, but he said, I'll go first, and I'll show you the way. Let's be like Jesus, because facts do matter. In this world, facts matter, and it can be hard, but let's be people who don't lie. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We lie.
I, I can't speak for everybody in the room, but Lord, you know what a liar I am. You know how chronically and impulsively I lie to shade things, to, to make myself look better than I am. You know how much I need those questions that, that John Wesley and his friends asked themselves. You know how easy it is for us to lie and how doing so normalizes falsehood. And so we become a culture where the facts don't matter. Lord, help us to be people who tell the truth, people who trust that Jesus has overcome the world and the world cannot make us lie. And Lord, help us to love the way he did because honesty alone is not enough. Help us to be the kind of loving community where everybody knows they can safely tell the truth. We pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.